Hi, you're listening to the Zoe Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Zoe Fellowship exists to have fellowship with God and with one another and to extend that fellowship to others through the work of Jesus Christ. This week's sermon is from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, and is preached by Pastor Paul Hong. Due to the COVID-19 virus, Zoe Fellowship Sunday services are available to join in person and via live stream. Precautionary measures such as wearing masks, disinfecting, and social distancing are being taken during our physical gatherings. We hold our Sunday services at 1 p.m. You can find a link to the live stream in the description box. Well, good afternoon. Everyone, if you have your Bibles, will you turn to the book of Ecclesiastes? We are continuing our uh, study in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We are in chapter 4, and we're going to go through the whole book, um, or sorry, not the whole book, the whole chapter today. (laughs) Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Follow along with me. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. The fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who will come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after win. This is God's word. So uh, in a few weeks, it'll be uh, my anniversary with my wife. Uh, we got married July 11th, 2016. Uh, our, and during, that, during this four years, we've gone through a whole lot of change. Uh, we've moved twice, technically, after we got married. Uh, uh, I, Anna started school, and, uh, and I started and ended school. I worked for a year during that time. We had a baby. He is almost a year old now. He's almost 11 months actually next week, which is so, so insane. Um, And so we've gone through a lot of changes, but I would say for those of you who are married, uh, who might agree with me when I say this, that that first year or two years of marriage uh, is probably the time you go through the most changes, or at least it feels that way because it happens all so fast. 
Um, and I wanted to compare, uh, I wanted to look at um, my first year of marriage, uh, just at the very beginning of it and near the end of the first year of marriage. Because at the first, at the beginning of my first year of marriage, I was uh, realizing how many things I would have to give up, right? And really it was about convenience. I knew that uh, I would have to give up space on my bed for another person. Uh, I knew that I wouldn't be able to just go out whenever I wanted to go hang out with friends as late as I wanted anymore. Uh, there was one incident while we were living in California that um, <clears throat> I had gotten a gym membership for a full year uh, at 24-Hour Fitness, which is going out of business, by the way, because of uh, the pandemic. Um, but I had gotten a year-long uh, membership there, and there was one night where Anna had fallen asleep a little earlier than I, and so, and I was a bit restless, I couldn't fall asleep, and I decided, okay, you know what, I'm just going to go exercise, uh, I'm going to go hoop with some people, because people at 24-Hour Fitness, they hoop late at night for whatever reason, so it was like, like about, probably like nine or eight or so when I left, um, and I did this without leaving a note, without telling my wife, she was asleep, and I just figured she'd stay asleep all night, right, um, but then I went, I exercised, I played hoops, and then... Uh, I looked at my phone and I saw that I had like 11 missed calls and all these text messages from my wife and I started panicking because I thought she was in trouble and so when I called her, she, was, she started crying over the phone and she was saying, where are you? I thought you were dead. I thought you got kidnapped. I thought like all this stuff and I was like, what the heck? Why would you jump to that conclusion? Why did you wake up, you know? Uh, and so it was one of those things like one of the biggest or first lessons that I learned is like I just can't leave whenever I want anymore, right? And I have to come home. There's somebody waiting for me at home. Um, I realized that I was just not as free as I was. And it caused obviously that sort of self-centeredness, that sort of uh, um, uh, selfishness uh, led to a lot of trouble in uh, our marriage, at least in the, first, in the first year of marriage. But then in the last half, or at least the, the last few months of our marriage, it was different because Anna actually had to go back to Fort Worth uh, to take some classes over the summer. And she had to be in class. She couldn't take it online. And so, and so she went back. But when I dropped her off at the airport, I was like crying. And, and then I drove home all alone. And um, that, those few months that we were apart while she was in Fort Worth and I was still in California before I moved back to Dallas was one of the hardest or some of the hardest uh, months of my life because I missed her so much. I did not realize how much she would grow on me, how much I would hate sleeping in a bed alone, how much uh, I would hate going to do groceries and by myself and things like that. And um, I did not want to be free. That was the reality of it. As I, as I grew, uh, as we grew in our marriage over that first year, I realized like those inconveniences or that felt like inconveniences at the time, like I desired those things now. I desired to um, come home at a respectable hour and not feel like I've abandoned my wife or things like that. Um, and I tell you all that because when we're looking at today's passage, um, both that first part of my marriage, and, or the first year of my marriage, and then the, 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 the last few months of the first year of my marriage, kind of illustrate uh, what's going on in this passage. This passage is really telling us this main point that we all know, especially as those of us who are Christians. And then I would even say that people who do not believe in God also probably agree with this, which is that all people should love your neighbor as yourself. Right? This is sort of going to be the main point of today's passage, that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. And <clears throat> as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes so far, we've been in it for about a month now, a month today, or three weeks at least, um, and we're in our fourth week. Now, we've, I, at the beginning, I told you that there were uh, three main themes kind of interweaved throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. First of all, that man is mortal, that we will all die one day, right? In our first week, we learned that learning to live means we have to learn that we're going to die, 
right? That permanence is not a reality under the sun, and it is pointless to search for some, any sort of permanence in our lives. The second theme that runs throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is that life is a gift from God, right? And so all of our life's enjoyments are gifts from God. Our family, our friends, food, marriage, singleness, all these things are all gifts from God that we can enjoy. They are a grace from God. And then finally, this third theme that is in the book of Ecclesiastes is that uh, we ought to obey and fear God. We ought to fear God and obey Him. We learned last week that all our pasts and all our futures are in the hands of God, right? So He is totally sovereign. He allows everything that happens to us to happen for some reason, whether we know it or not. We, are all, we ought to just obey Him and fear Him because He is a good and sovereign God, and we trust that about Him. And so today, when we're thinking about this theme of loving your neighbor as yourself, this kind of interweaves all those things together at once in in sort of one chapter. And this chapter uh, kind of splits itself up into two parts. And the first part is teaching us this, that life is not meant to be lived for yourself. Life is not meant to be lived for yourself. Look at verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better, is bo- than, better than both is he who has not yet been and has not, even, has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Let's stop there for a second. And so what, what the preacher's going to do in this first half is he's going to kind of use some sort of char- some characters to illustrate uh, the things that he's learning. And the, and the first group of characters we see are these, the people who are oppressed and then the oppressors of those people, right? And the people who are oppressed, he describes them, they have tears and no one to comfort them. That's all they have. And what connects the oppressed with their oppressors is that other than that the oppressor is oppressing them, is that the oppressor, while this person has power, This person, the oppressor, also has no one to comfort him. And those are the things that connect that in the end, both the oppressed and the oppressor have no one to comfort them. They have no comforter. And we can see that these these people uh, in today's society, it's so like when I was reading this, I was so surprised to see this only because it's what we're seeing today. Right? That we have a group of oppressed people who only have is their tears. They have no, or they feel like they have no voice. Um, they're not getting through. They've been suffering for hundreds of years under oppression in different forms, some more explicit than now. Obviously, we've made some progress, but still, uh, it is still an issue that we're fighting today. And they feel like they have no one to comfort them. And then on the other side of that, we have our oppressors who also, though they have power, though they have authority and uh, privilege and those things, The oppressor also has no one to comfort them because in the end, when the oppressor or the oppressed, when they rise up, they're going to find that oppressor is going to need friends too, right? And, but they have no one either. And so the preacher in seeing this under the sun, he's saying, you know what? It's better to be dead. It is better to be dead, to be stuck in this cycle of oppression that we see in both today's society and even um, the preacher's society in his day, right? It's just better to be dead. It's better to live or better to not live through this any longer. And, but then he even goes further and says it's even better to be dead. Is, is, it's better to not have been born at all. It's better to never have seen it. 
right? He goes that far into saying that's how terrible oppression is, that's how loud our cries for justice are, is that it's either better to be dead and it's even best not to have experienced or seen it at all in the first place through our existence. Like this is how terrible it is. And what we see here is this a way that, the, the way that we hate our neighbors. We oppress our neighbors and that is a way we hate our neighbors instead of loving them like we should is through oppression. And there's many, many ways to hate our neighbor. And the preacher continues in, in showing this, right? Verse 4, Then I saw that to all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. There's a, uh, there's a poem by Victor Hugo. You guys know Victor Hugo. He wrote Les, Les, Les Miserables, or Less Miserables for you Americans. <laughs> well, I'm American, I guess. But, um, but he also wrote The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is a, maybe lesser known, or actually pretty well known, but still not as much as Les Miserables, obviously. But he also, is, he also wrote a many number of short stories and poems and things like that, right? And he wrote this one very short poem telling the story of, this, of these twin sisters called Envy and Greed, okay? And so these twin sisters are envying greed. Greed, she has this small treasure box that has all these locks on it. And all greed does is just look at it, pet it. It's my precious, all this stuff. And all she thinks is that I don't have enough. There's not enough in here, right? But I want it all. I'm not going to share it with anybody. And yet there's still not enough in here. That's what greed, that's how he characterizes greed. But then he looks at envy, and all envy does is stare at that treasure box and say, I deserve that. Greed doesn't cherish that. Greed doesn't deserve that. I want, and that's all that envy is focused on. And then one day, the God of gift appears, right? This God of gift. And he says to the sisters, he says, I will give you both gifts, um, but whoever speaks their, what they desire first, I'll give the other sister double portion of what that first sister asked. Okay, I'll give double the portion of whatever the first sister asked. And so Envy immediately speaks up and she says, ha, I wish, I want to be blind in one eye. And what that would mean, obviously, is that greed would be blind in two eyes because the God of gift is going to double the portion of whatever the first sister asked, right? And this is the nature of envy, okay? What it means to envy your neighbor is to always desire that you are better off than them in some way, shape, or form, that you desire their demise, and I think that one of the things that, uh, one of the ways that we very subtly struggle with envy and jealousy, at least I can see that in my own life, is that when a friend of mine enjoys some sort of success or some sort of blessing, I have to pretend to be happy for that person. But in the inside, in my heart, there's a struggle, a friction, because I realize how much I either want the thing that, uh, is, is that, that my friend is enjoying, or I don't want my friend to enjoy it. And this is how I think subtly envy enters into our lives when we realize that, oh, I don't want my neighbor to be happy. At least, I don't want them to be happier than I am. I want to be more satisfied than them. This is another way we hate our neighbors. There are so many ways we hate our neighbors. And then verse 5 and 6, he characterizes two other people, right? And there are different sides of a pendulum, okay? First, verse 5 describes the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And what who he's describing here is, is the lazy person, somebody who is just totally lazy. And, and laziness is hallmark of fools, as the Bible will show us. And so he, what it means that he holds his hand and eats his own flesh is that he is so lazy 
that he doesn't want to work, he doesn't want to move, he doesn't want to do anything, but how is he supposed to eat if he doesn't work? And so he ends up just eating his own hands, because at least they're there, he doesn't have to get up to go get food, right? He can fold them and eat it like a sandwich, right? That's how lazy uh, this fool is. But on the other side of the pendulum, in verse 6, we see this, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. And what this person is described as is a workaholic or a busybody. Just somebody who is just so busy with so many different things and is never satisfied, right? They, they'd rather have two hands full of work and toil and things to do and to be seen as important and, um, and be influential in their spheres of, in their social circles and all those things instead of just being satisfied with the one handful of quietness that they can have. And so instead of being satisfied with that, they just keep busying themselves with other things so they can, they can appear busy. This is a busybody. And both are foolish. Both are ways to hate your neighbor because the lazy person has nothing to offer. He hasn't worked. He doesn't care about his neighbor. And then the person who is busy is so busy living for himself that he is too busy to, or he, doesn't ha he can't offer himself to do anything. And all the things that he does is not offered to anybody else because it's for himself to make himself look better. And ultimately leads to this, verse 7 and 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, that there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? When you hate your neighbor, the result is just utter loneliness. And some of you feel lonely, and I think that might be a result of hating your neighbor. You might not actively do this, right? It's just that you so so prefer yourself or you bought into the idea of loving yourself or self-care or something like that, that you forget that that's not what it means to love yourself. Self-care or loving yourself or forgiving yourself, those are worldly ideologies. They're not of the Bible. They're not how God wants us to operate. He wants us to love our neighbors. And ultimately, this person is going to find himself alone. The lazy person is going to be alone. The busybody is going to be alone. The oppressor is going to be alone because he is causing loneliness in his oppressed, right? And in the end, this is what we see, that there are so many ways to hate your neighbor. So what, is, what does the preacher say then? Well, he says this, that he shows the opposite of this, right? That while life is not meant to be lived for yourself, life is meant to be lived with others. Okay, life is meant to be lived with others. And this is what he illustrates in verses 9 through 12. He's showing very practical reasons why it's better that life is lived with others, right? He's, he's just showing how easy and practical it really is. And it's, very, it's like common sense. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If two people are working on a project together and they're working together, they're going to get more done. For if they fall, one will lift us up his fellow. But woe to him who's alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. This is why accountability, those things are important because when somebody falls, you can pick them back up through correction or rebuke and loving truth to them. It's better that somebody can come pick you up whether you, if you cripple yourself by falling. And then verse 11, again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? This is describing two travelers, travelers in, a, in a desert. And when it comes to the night, it's cold, right, in the desert alone. And so if you're in the desert alone traveling, then it's hard to stay warm. But if you have a, if you have a friend, you can buddy up, right? You can snuggle up together and stay warm in the cold of night, and which is often used as a metaphor, right, to describe the dark and cold world we live in. And it's better to live with somebody and travel through that together than alone. 
And then finally, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. If somebody comes up to you wanting to start a fight, you have a better shot when your friend is backing you up or then you're fighting alone with this person. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. He's saying, yeah, just keep multiplying. The more, the merrier. It's better. And he just shows a very practical life of why it's better to be living with other people than taking on the world alone. And he goes on in verse 13 and he describes this kind of another cycle and trying to illustrate yet again that life is meant to be lived with others. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. And I saw all the living move under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all, uh, no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and is striving after wind. So the preacher, he gives this example of this young, wise youth, right? right? Uh, oh, sorry, a poor and wise youth and an old and foolish king. And the foolish king is foolish because he cannot, he no longer knows how to take advice. He doesn't listen to people anymore, right? And, and so that kind of automatically helps us to see that to be wise is, or like this wise youth, to be wise is to be open to suggestion, right? To be advisable, to be open to criticism and feedback. And, and what we see is that in verse 14, it's just describing this old and foolish king. He was at one point uh, uh, a poor and wise youth. That's how he got to the throne. He, was, he went from prison to the throne. In his own kingdom, he was born poor, but through his wisdom, through listening to others, having, inviting others into his life, he grew up into his throne. But we, what we also see in verse 15 and 16 is ultimately this, this, poor, uh, this poor and wise youth will grow up to take the place of his king because this king no longer knew how to take advice. And what this is obviously showing, especially if those of you who consider yourself to have any sort of influence in your life, right, amongst other people, is to say that you ought to be open to suggestion and you need to invite people into your lives if you, if you want to continue having that influence. If you want to have any sort of positive influence or authority or power where you can help people and grow yourself, then you need to know how to take advice. You need to know how to do that and so that you can, your, um, your influence will be good and strong and wise as this uh, poor and wise youth was who gets to his throne. But in the end, it is a cycle. This youth ultimately will grow up to be this king, an old and foolish king where he'll lose his influence because his, he starts, his uh, circle of friends starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller until he's not listening to anyone anymore. We all know what, that person, right? We all know somebody who's just kind of grown out of his position and his influence. And we think, oh, it's about time, old man, for you to retire because he's stopped up his ears. He won't listen to anyone anymore. We don't want to be that guy. That is unwise, according to the preacher. And so these are ways that we can love our neighbor, right? These, these are practical reasons why loving your neighbor is a good thing. It's a wise thing. And this commandment to love God, to love your neighbor as yourself, obviously is from, is from Jesus himself, right? And so this is a, a passage from Luke 10 where he's kind of describing what it means to, to love your neighbor. And this is kind of the whole story, okay? First, and this is Luke chapter 10, verse 25. He says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Already we know that his, his uh, motivations are not pure. 
stood up to put Jesus to this test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He doesn't mean that. He doesn't really desire, to etern- uh, desire eternal life. And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Remember, this is a lawyer. So Jesus is like, Well, you know the law. You're a lawyer. What does it say? How does it say that we can do it? And the lawyer says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Pretty simple. And Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Right? You will live. You will live. You'll inherit eternal life. Verse 29. But, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? You see how he's trying to justify himself, right? He's commanded very clearly, very simply, no, no any sort of nuances or in the text or anything. He says that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. And desiring to justify himself, the lawyer asks, well, okay, give me some fences around who my neighbor really is. Give me, define neighbor for me, will you, Jesus? And Jesus, instead of rebuking him, because he automatically sees what he's doing, instead of rebuking him, he tells him this, Story, and we all know this story very well. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, right? Jewish priest going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so, likewise, a Levite, also a Jewish person, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, which is not a Jewish person, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is a great story because when we look at Ecclesiastes and when we look at this parable that Jesus shared, we see that there are so many ways to hate your neighbor. And what hating your neighbor ultimately is, is building up fences where you try to define your neighbor so that you don't have to love your neighbor. Isn't that ironic? You're trying to love your neighbor, and you're saying you're defining what their neighbor is so that you don't really have to love your neighbor. So, for example, let's take this oppressor. The oppressor says, I use my power and influence to make sure you stay on the outside of this fence that I'm building, how I'm just a, who, I'm, who I'm defining as my neighbor. The envious person, I just want to, I just, all I want is a taller and bigger and stronger fence than my neighbor so that he can't be happy. But I want a little peephole so I can see what he has and enjoy it. And lazy, the lazy person, I don't want to love my neighbor. It's too hard. I'm too tired, too exhausted, too lazy. I don't want to move. Somebody build this fence for me. The busybody, the busybody. I don't have time for my neighbor, right? I don't have time anyway because so I'm, I'm too busy building this fence. I'm too busy. I have too much to do. I don't have time for my neighbor. And the person who's... The homebody, right? Verses 7 and 8. The homebody. I've finished building my fence, but I realize now everybody's on the other side of the fence, and I am alone. This is how we justify this question that the lawyer does. Do you understand that we're the lawyer in this? We're seeking to justify ourselves. 
loving your neighbor, loving God, loving your neighbor, it's a great idea. It sounds really nice. It's just really hard to do. And this isn't to say that the Bible doesn't give us some clarifications about maybe priority. Like he talks about family, like being able to provide for your family. If you're not doing that, you're no better than an unbeliever. And he talks about, if you're reading the letters of the New Testament, all the one another's of Scripture, bearing each other's burdens and loving one another, those are actually amongst Christians in your local church. So we're talking about church membership here at that point. So there is, there is some priority, but, but there's no fence about loving somebody, meaning caring for them. Loving your neighbor as yourself, again, like I said before, is not loving yourself in the way of like self-care and making sure you're emotionally healthy and those things. Not that that stuff isn't important, but that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying, how do you take care of yourself? You take care of yourself that, like this Samaritan does. He binds up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He takes him on his own, he shelters him, he gives him food, makes sure he recovers. And you would do that for yourself if you could. So do that for your neighbor. And we know that it's not just like, uh, uh, it's, it's a very wide fence, right? It's, there's, the fence is, is really far out, okay? It's not a narrow fence. It's not a small garden that you're trying to keep in your fence. It's wide, it's broad, it welcomes everyone. And we know that because this man is a Samaritan. Jesus specifically uses the Samaritan to show compassion to this Jewish man who's going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's robbed. And he specifically uses two Jewish people to show that, oh, they're just passing by on the other side. Who's the neighbor then? It's not familial relation. It's not because they're both Israelites or Jewish in religion. It's the Samaritan who's totally different from you. Jesus is saying, he's like, your fence should be really, really wide. Your garden should be very, very broad, and it should welcome a lot of people. There's so many ways to hate your neighbor. So many ways, and we hate our neighbor by trying to justify who our neighbor is, right? Trying to define our neighbor so we don't have to love our neighbor. And so this is very clear, it's very straightforward. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Care for your neighbor, have compassion on your neighbor. Practice hospitality. That might be the easiest way. I know it's harder to do now, but it just means you can do less of it at a time, right? These are all ways we can love our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, as our Lord commands. This is, I bring that up only because this is sort of the reflection of my first year of marriage at the very beginning of it where I thought it was inconvenient. I was building a fence. I don't want to take care of my wife. I want to just live on my own and eat food by myself, cook my own food, not for another person, do my own laundry, and certainly there's more responsibilities. By the end of it, I was like, I wish my fence went all the way to Fort Worth so my wife could be in it. And that's what it felt like, and that's the idea, is that you just want to build your fence out as far and wide as you can. That's how you can love your neighbor.